That's about, that's, that's about typical cradle United Methodist. You were born into the United Methodist Church. Okay, the percentage went up a little bit, but it's still probably about average. Um, probably about half of our groups are usually um, cradle United Methodist. Um, so I'm not. I'm like the other half that's not cradle United Methodist. Uh, it's always fascinating to see how people, how people, well, I don't know if I even want to use the word choose. I start to say how people choose which branch of the Christian faith they want to live out their Christian life. Um, most time, people don't really choose. Uh, it, it's, it's family, it's geography, um, it's the people that they encounter when they go to a particular congregation. Um, and I guess that's okay. Uh, that's kind of the modern way of doing it. Uh, most people that choose a church today don't choose a church because of theology, practice, polity, government of the church. Uh, we used to. We used to. Uh, but today people just... Theology is not that high up the, 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 the list for them. And it's just almost chosen by default for them. And that's fine. That doesn't mean God can't work through. Wherever God has you, God can work through that. Um, but, um, you know, I think sometimes it really uh, is significant for us to think through why we're part of a particular church family, why we're part of a particular tradition. Uh, and it's become more important because in the modern era, uh, we, 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 we very much have this thing going on where people can kind of pick and choose and create their own religious or spiritual faith. And that's not bad either, because you're going to see my, my life was, is very much a blend. But what happens in our contemporary world, people pick and choose um, from the religious buffet of our culture. And oftentimes, they choose contradictory things. Let me give you an example. First time I really sort of noticed this, and then I started reading, and it, I learned it's indicative of our society. First time I noticed this is when I was pastoring uh, First United Methodist Church in Franklin, North Carolina, up in the mountains, and had a wonderful, wonderful gentleman that sat on my front pew every Sunday morning. Um, his wife was in our choir, so he sat by himself on my front pew every Sunday morning. Uh, what I learned after I got to know him was he was on our front pew every Sunday morning uh, listening to me preach in our worship service. He was in the Seventh-day Adventist church every Saturday. And, um, and he, he, he never struggled with real contradictions. Uh, after I got to know him well, I finally said to him one day, I said, John, um, do you believe... At death, the spirit goes to be with the Lord or not? Are you Seventh-day Adventist or are you Methodist on that one? Um, he didn't even know what I was asking. And, uh, and, and that's just one of the few very differences between us and Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventist is one of those few, few, few groups within the Christian community that believes that uh, at death, uh, your body and your soul are not um, separated. At death, your body and your soul stay together. Uh, at death, your body and your soul stay together in the grave. They believe in what's called soul sleep. And then uh, they believe in the resurrection of the body at the end of history. But they just don't have any wondrous life between death and resurrection of the body like the rest of the Christian church does. So they have a very unique view on what happens to the human spirit or human psyche at death. But they didn't see, this, that person didn't see any contradiction in that. Uh, but we're, we're in a world where we, that, that's kind of the world we're in now. Consistency is not, not, not um, highly esteemed in our culture. So I, I, I commend you on your willingness to think a little more deeply about your place in the Christian community. So thank you for that. Um, I have a very, 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 very background. 
And um, there's two ways of looking at that, because I'm probably going to keep, I'm probably get you very confused. You, you may remember where I was born, but that may be the end of it. I'm probably get you very confused as I tell you a little bit about my journey. But I learned decades ago there's, there's two ways of looking at my journey. I, I choose to look at my journey as I think I've, I'm very grateful for my journey. I have a rich, varied background in a lot of different parts of the Christian community. Uh, I, I, I'm not like a lot of Americans. I never had the option, opportunity, or desire to just kind of hang out in my little subculture only. You know, I'm in my subculture a lot, which is why when I'm on vacation, the last church I want to worship in is United Methodist, because I'm here all the time. So when I vacation, I, I find something a little different. Um, but I've never had that opportunity to just kind of hang out in my subculture. Uh, so I like to, I'm very grateful for my background. I, 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 I consider my background a gift. I consider, um, I consider it a rich, rich, varied experience. Uh, which is good because you either consider it that or you think I'm schizophrenic, one or the other. <laughs> but I choose to think that my, my various experiences um, make, make for a great Christian experience. But uh, I'm, the older I get, the more I realize how my various experiences and my various um, experiences in different parts of the Christian community uh, really maintain a theme throughout my Christian life. Um, which is why I'm, I, I think um, the older I get, and I hate labels, particularly in this culture, because the, um, the, the, the news media uses labels so often, and the news media certainly doesn't know how to use the labels like we use the labels. And we mean, when we use words liberal, conservative, traditionalist, uh, progressive, charismatic, evangelical, we mean something very specific with each of those. Um, the news media is totally confused on those. And that's why they use the terms, and that's why you can't listen to them. But the older I get, um, you know, I, I'm getting increasingly comfortable with just the term orthodox. When I look at my very background, um, the groups that have nurtured me um, have have firmly been planted in that orthodox stream of the Christian faith, which is one of the reasons I, I told somebody the other day, I'm, I'm just having a ball preaching a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. And it wasn't even my idea. It was Clark's idea because I, they, they knew I would salivate if you let me preach a doctrinal series. And so I'm loving preaching on the Apostles' Creed. But um, because orthodox Christian faith is, is really important to me. And we're, we're at a point in our culture because of the religious buffet and people's lack of consistency and people being ruled more by their emotions and being ruled more by their experience that all of a sudden Christian convictions and Christian orthodox and Christian faith, stuff that we've died for for 2,000 years, and by the way, that which people are dying for all around the world today uh, as you've heard me say probably many times, more people died for their faith in Jesus Christ in the 20th century than any other century of Christian history. Um, and it's going to, that's continuing into the 21st century. Um, we've, got a, um, we've got an Ethiopian Christian family in our church now. I hope at some point everybody gets to hear Mazinga's story of what, because he is part of that Ethiopian, Sudanese, Christian versus Muslim, uh, civil war conflict that's going on in places like Ethiopia, Sudan. Uh, I did a wedding here recently for two Sudanese Christians. Uh, the groom, both his parents died because of their faith in Christ. Uh, the, 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 the bride, her parents both had been imprisoned because of their faith in Christ. So, you know, here around the world and throughout history, we've died for Christian convictions uh, with the conviction that cr our Christian convictions are true. They're truth, capital T. Um, but all of a sudden here, particularly in the West, in the modern post-Enlightenment West, post-Industrial Revolution West, all of a sudden, whatever you believe is fine. 
as long as you're sincere, that's all that matters. There's no concept that people can be sincerely wronged. Uh, and how dare anybody suggest that somebody can be sincerely wronged. Uh, but in the Christian faith, it's really very clear for 2,000 years what, what has been our convictions what hasn't been. Um, and it doesn't mean that we, we hate you if you go out on your own. I love my Seventh-day Adventist brothers. I let them know they have a peculiar doctrine uh, when it comes to what happens to your spirit at death. Um, you know, I, I don't hate them, but I, they, they're different, you know, and I, and I just don't want them passing off their stuff as Christian orthodoxy. Now, they have a lot of stuff that fits with Christian orthodoxy, but that piece on what happens at death, that, their piece doesn't fit with Christian orthodoxy. Just like, for instance, and these, this group is much, much worse, uh, that group that knocks on your door, they usually come in pairs. They love now to come in biracial pairs. Um, yeah, they're nowhere close to Orthodox Christianity on major issues such as who Jesus is. So um, we, we need to know. We need to know what it is we have fought and died for for the last 2,000 years. But when I look at my experience, what, what kind of weaves it all together is my experience of Christian orthodoxy uh, in various different places. And what you need to understand when you think about Christian denominations uh, is 95% of us agree on 95% of our stuff. That's why almost all, well, I would say all, all, all Christian denominations can, even if they don't choose to use a creed, um, they can use the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, on Sunday mornings if they choose to, and Athanasius' Creed. They can do that if they choose to. Even if the churches, some churches don't like creeds, but they, they believe everything in that creed. Uh, so um, um, we need to at least recognize Orthodox Christianity when it comes along, uh, and we need to recognize when we're seeing something that's not Orthodox Christianity. So now, my, my various experiences with uh, Orthodox Christian faith, because even though 95% of us agree on 95% of the stuff, where we tend to differ is not, if we're Christian denominations, is not on our theology. And it's not really on our practice regarding morality and ethics. We've, we're pretty consistent on that until recent years. Where we differ is how we govern the church, You'll, you'll, you'll hear some terms this week like episcopacy, itinerancy, the connection. These are Methodist ways of doing things. It's just the way we govern the church. Um, or we differ in um, our Sunday morning gymnastics, our, our worship. You know, we Methodists tend to be very introverted, left-brained, organized, quite shy and polite. So our worship somehow reflects that. I've got good Orthodox Christian friends in Pentecostal churches, yeah, they're not shy, quiet, <laughs> introverted, uh, left brain, they're kind of white. But they're, they're, they're as Orthodox as we are, and there's no difference in our theology, basically. There's some difference sometimes with our emphases, what we emphasize. Um, but, um, you know, 95% of us agree on 95% of the stuff. Our basic differences come in how we govern the church, you know, uh, if I had become a Catholic priest like I thought I was 40 years ago, I'd be celibate today, would not have two children and a wife. That's not a theological conviction. That's just part of the way the church is governed. You know, my Roman Catholic uh, brothers um, cannot marry. Uh, now, there's, there, there's wiggle room with that now, which is another topic, because they're accepting priests from uh, some other traditions. So you can come in as a priest with a wife, rarely, but it happens. But if your wife dies, you just can't get another one. Um, but you can come in with one you got. Uh, anyway, but we, so we differ in, in areas like that. And again, whether it's Roman Catholic or United Methodist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Episcopalian, we all can stand and recite the creed, one of those basic creeds. Uh, even in the Baptist world, they don't like creeds. They believe everything in our creed, particularly when I explain to them what we mean by Holy Catholic Church. I had to explain that one to my parents. But when I explained it, they agreed with it. Uh, they just don't like creeds in that tradition. 
Uh, but so all of us can um, um, at least stand and profess that. Now, if you've been um, listening to our sermon series on um, Apostles' Creed, I'm sure at one point I said there has been a move among some people in the modern era to change the creed from the historic credo, I believe, in God the Father, our maker of heaven and earth, to change it to what? We. 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 Um, because there are people who would profess that that is the faith of the church. They just don't profess it themselves. I had a good, still, I haven't seen her much lately, but I got a good friend of mine who just has, and she's ordained. Uh, she has strong, strong convictions about why the doctrine of the virgin birth is anti-female, anti-science, and the list goes on and on. Um, you know, she just hates the concept that uh, the Christian church has made our holy woman a virgin. Because that kind of leaves a lot of the rest of the human race out. But anyway, she has all these reasons why she doesn't accept the virgin birth. That's why she's fine with the church saying we believe. Because she knows that's the faith of the church. And she just doesn't want it to be her faith. Um, now that's a little problematic in a lot of our tradition because most of the ones that I just named for a few moments ago, we do take certain vows. Um, we, take, we, we receive certain charges, we answer certain questions, and we take certain vows. Uh, one of the vows we United Methodists take is we believe uh, that the scriptures are authoritative and are sufficient for faith and practice. Old Testament and New Testament. You know, but you know, I learned a long time ago watching Judge Judy, some people look straight at you and God and lie. <laughs> <laughs> or, they, or, they, or they take those kind of vows with um, um, the fingers crossed. Anyway, so the, the, the thread that sort of goes through my, my background, I'm going to launch into it now, the thread that goes through my background is um, uh, I've had some wonderful experiences regarding the ways I experience Orthodox Christianity. Um, so, I was born in Gastonia, big mill village, particularly when I was growing up in it. Parents uh, that were uh, from the mountains, of Western North Carolina and um, North Georgia. Uh, they, uh, both their families had moved to Gastonia during the Second World War uh, to work in textiles, because a lot of people left the mountains to do that uh, during the Second World War. So when my father left uh, World War II, his family was living in Gastonia, North Carolina. So uh, he came home to Gastonia where his family was. So I was born in Gastonia. Um, my um, parents, being good mountain stock, uh, were Baptist because um, particularly before all the people from Florida invaded, the only options you had was Baptist or Methodist up in the mountains of Western North Carolina. So my parents were uh, raised Baptist and um, so when I was born, I was born into a good Baptist family and I'm very, very grateful for um, uh, what, what the Baptist church gave me growing up. Um, I, I have a love for Scripture. I learned when I went to seminary, I knew Scripture better than some of the Methodists I was dealing at, hanging out with. But I, I learned Scripture. I appreciated the um, love for Christian hymns that I was given when I was growing up. I actually took piano for six years from a Baptist preacher's wife, mm -hmm. which is why I can play hymns. <laughs> I haven't played much else, but I can play hymns. Um, but I appreciate, particularly as I get older, you know, as we, I think as we get older, we hopefully can look back over our lives with a little more objectivity, and we can look back over our lives and um, see how God has worked. Uh, particularly as I get older, I, I value my upbringing. Um, that church let me teach my first Sunday school class when I was 13 years old. Um, that was interesting. Um, so, I, so I had some great experiences there. Uh, and I took some wonderful things away from growing up in that church. But of course, when I hit teenage years, the uh, only thing I knew about the Baptist church at that point was that was the faith of my parents, so it couldn't be mine. Um, that's kind of the way teenagers function sometimes. They, they learn who they are by opposing you. Um, so during my teenage years, I, I, because I was sort of a strange kid, um, I did teach my first Sunday school class when I was 13. Um, 
I, I do have a vague memory, my parents told me about it. I have a vague memory of doing funerals for my pets when they died. <laughs> um, but I learned right before my father died that uh, my grandfather, who died, when I, who died when I was six years old, uh, used to tell people I was going to be a preacher when he carried me around in his arms. So, um, yeah, I was kind of a strange kid. So even though I went through my teenage rebellion, and part of that was uh, not liking my parents' church, uh, what it did for me and the way I acted out was uh, tried to look for my own, my own expression of the Christian faith. And my personality, even way back then, has been that I, I study my ways to decisions. You know, my wife will tell you it drives her crazy. You know, if she wants me to make a decision, she knows she has to give me time, and I will make a decision. I will study my way to a decision. You know, I, I, I think I was spontaneous once about 1983. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I made a decision about 1990 based on emotions. But that's just normally not my style. So even as a high school kid um, who was into reading and history and all that stuff, you know, I started looking at the different expressions of the Christian faith. And I remember studying Lutheranism pretty closely because we had a great Lutheran church in Gastonia. Uh, I remember studying uh, Quakerism pretty closely. Had no Quakers at all in Gastonia. Uh, I still think there's only like one or two Quaker meetings in Charlotte. I mean, you get about 50 miles away from the triad, you don't run into Quakers or Moravians. They're just up here. Um, but I remember studying both of those. And then um, something unique happened, and it shows you the kind of sense of humor God has. Uh, this uh, Protestant kid from Mill Village um, got, a, got a full academic scholarship uh, to Belmont Abbey College, which you may know is Roman Catholic. Scared my parents to death. I mean, I grew up hearing all of the bizarre Catholic prejudices, you know, that, well, some I won't even repeat. Um, trying to think of what I can repeat. Well, the, the best one, the easiest one. I remember growing up here, well, if you're Catholic, you can do anything you want, just go to confession and start over. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's not fair to the Catholics. Believe me, it's not fair. One of these days I'll teach a course on Catholicism. That's not fair to the Catholics. Uh, but I grew up hearing all of that stuff. But I heard stuff that I don't want to repeat. I uh, heard about Catholics. As a matter of fact, the Baptist church in which I grew up, I don't have a lot of memories of what I heard from the pulpit. Uh, but I remember that preacher saying one time he had rather be communist than Catholic. <laughs> you talk about ignorance. Mm. Yeah, and I still occasionally run across people who will will say Catholic and Christian as if they're not the same thing. Anyway, um, we were all Catholic for the first for the first thousand fifty four years. That's all there was. That's who we were. Um, anyway, but I got a scholarship to to go to Belmont Abbey and step into a uh, unique world. Belmont Abbey is a small liberal arts college. It was founded in 1876 uh, by Benedictine monks from the Trobe, Pennsylvania, who came down. Um, a Catholic plantation owner gave them a whole lot of property there in Belmont. Uh, that's why Belmont Abbey predates Belmont. Belmont was called Garibaldi, North Carolina until they named themselves after the abbey that was there. Then finally they named themselves Belmont after Belmont Abbey. Belmont Abbey is named after an abbey in England. Um, anyway, so it's a Benedictine school, very much steeped in the liberal arts, Catholic, cat, classic Christian tradition. So, um, and I was a history religious studies major, so most of, my, most of my professors were priests. You know, I had to do things like study Plato, study Aristotle, uh, it was a very much a classic education. All of us had to take logic. God, don't I wish the world around us. But we all had to take logic in our first year. Um, anyway, so of course I was heavily influenced because 18 years old, it's, it's probably not the best age to try to decide what you want to do with your life, but you're easily influenced. I was 18 years old trying to figure out my trajectory. I think there had been a call to ministry in all my life, my whole life. Um, but there, all of a sudden, I'm in this strange world that was not like Southern Baptist. I, I learned Latin and, and I learned Gregorian chant. Those monks gather, they've given their life to the church. Uh, they live there on the campus. Uh, they take very unique vows. 
um, pertaining to the Christian life and how they're going to live out the Christian life. Uh, they, they have, depending on your monastery, they're at the Abbey. They have four set prayer times a day in community, and they have two private prayer times a day. Uh, they practice Lectio Divina, which is a special way of kind of reading Scripture to hear the voice of God in Scripture. Um, they practice that daily. Anyway, I'm, I'm in that strange new world, uh, sensing my call to ministry. So for most of those four years, I had, I had, and I felt very much at home there. I actually felt like, and this is a very Catholic thing, by the way, I felt like I had returned home. That's why if ever one of you converted to Catholicism this week, <laughs> they will tell you you have returned home. You know, you didn't find a new way of doing it, you returned home. Uh, anyway, but there was part of me that felt like it was home. Um, because again, in the Roman Catholic tradition, that's the oldest branch of Christianity that we know. So uh, while I was there, I, I pretty much decided I was going to be a Roman Catholic priest. Um, as a result, also while I was there, um, because of my connection with Abby, I became an oblate. I always have to spell that word for people, for you that don't have a lot of Catholic heritage. Um, but this is a good term that is actually used sometimes in our worship, oblut. You ever heard the word oblation? It's kind of a biblical word. It means offering. So an oblate is someone who is a non-cloistered monastic, you know, obviously I don't live in the monastery. Uh, an oblate is a non-cloistered monastic who um, has uh, connected with the monastery and they take the vows of the monastery, except for those of us that are oblates outside the monastery living in the real world. Um, we, we don't take vows, we take promises. They try to be gentle on us. Uh, the, the monks, they don't know how we ha ever have time to pray out here in the real world. And I say, don't, don't be too easy on me. Hold me accountable. I can't pray, even, in, in, even with wife and kids and, and a job. Uh, but an oblate is someone who is connected to a monastery. So I'm, I'm, and, and interestingly enough, in the Benedictine world, you don't even have to be Roman Catholic to be an oblate because, of course, St. Benedict predates the Reformation by a thousand years. So when St. Benedict began all of his stuff, it's a thousand years before Protestants ever showed up. Um, so, um, you know, of course they don't consider me clergy um, because I ended up not becoming a Roman Catholic priest, but I'm still an oblate to the Order of St. Benedict, which I, uh, take, I took promises that I renew annually. Um, and the, the, unique promises for, um, the unique promises that we take is, um, and this is a whole other course, but these are three important promises. I take a vow of stability. Now in the monastic world, that means if you take a vow to, at Belmont Abbey Monastery as a monk, you will die and be buried out there in the backyard. That's their vow of stability. And I used to just think it was a geographical thing. And it looks geographical from the outside. Uh, they, don't, they, don't, they don't move around like Franciscans and Dominicans and all the rest. So it looks geographical, but really what the vow of stability is, and mine's a promise of stability, is that I've taken a, I've taken a promise to find God wherever I'm at. That's why in the monastic world, um, they take a vow to stay at that monastery, which what that means is they can't wake up one morning and say, are you, who's in Indiana? You're Indiana. Um, are you, were you close to St. Mandarin, St. Mandarin Monastery up there in the middle? Okay, up there in the middle of no, oh, it's an amazing monastery. It's out in the middle of cornfields. It's founded by German Catholics. Um, I've retreated up there before. I've retreated at Gethsemane where Thomas Merton was in, um, uh, near Louisville, too. Um, but there at St. Minard, they had like 120 monks. You know how hard it is to find 120 monks in this world? Um, <laughs> people are not lining up to be monks and nuns any longer. But think about St. Minard. Now, they can do Gregorian chant. There's 120 of them when they go to do Gregorian chant. When I go back to the Abbey once a month, except during COVID, when I go back to the Abbey, Back in the 50s, they had about 50-some monks. Now they have 20-some. And they're okay. They don't, those 20 monks don't do Gregorian chant as well as 120 do at St. Minor. But anyway, the vow of stability says, I can't wake up one morning and say, you know, I need a new abbot. I need a new monastery. I need, I need some monks that can sing. 
I need, I need, and you know, and we as, we as Americans, that list goes on and on and on. My life will be good if, you know, well, the Benedictines taught me vow stability, or for me, a promise of stability. If you can't find God where you are, chances are you're not going to find God at all. If you have to keep running to another place, another style of music, another conference, finding a better preacher, the list goes on. Just find God where you're at. Now, you know, that promise as a Benedictine all that served me well when my bishop sent me to Franklin, North Carolina. This was somebody who said I never wanted to serve west of I-77. And you know where Franklin, North Carolina is? That's about as west of I-77. And I think my bishop sent me there because I said, I don't don't want to serve west. So it was a great spiritual experience. And and I knew when I went there, God's there too. I have to, my vow of stability, uh, I had to find God there, even in Franklin, North Carolina. And the other vow, that's one of the vows or promises that Benedictines take. Uh, another one is a, um, a, a promise of obedience. Now, you know, in, in the Benedictine world, that means obedience to your abbot, whoever's elected abbot of the monastery, which means papa, whoever's elected abbot of the monastery. Um, and the, the way they teach the vow of obedience, and this, this is something Americans desperately need to hear too, because um, we all say, well, our, my obedience is to God. We all say that. Well, my Benedictine brothers would say to me, where are you practicing that? Where are you practicing obedience? Where are you practicing submission? You know, there's, there's a spiritual disconnect if we say our obedience is to God, but then we live our whole life getting our way with everything. <laughs> you know, setting our own agendas. Um, so in the monastic world, and by the way, the Methodist world, um, sometimes the most important thing you might need at the moment is somebody to make you to do something you don't want to do. Like go to Franklin, North Carolina. And you know, um, it wasn't my Methodist brothers and sisters that helped me move to Franklin. It was my Benedictine background. My vow submission to my, for me, a bishop. Yeah, so at that point, Bishop Cameron sent me to uh, Franklin, North Carolina. Um, you know, I, in my heart, I thought, Bishop, you have not heard from God. You have lost your mind. But I've, I take a promise to submit to you. And I know that spiritually it will benefit me. To, to, I've run across people in my life, and I know you know these people too. I just wish for one day they'd have to do something they don't want to do. It would just be a great spiritual experience for them. <laughs> but um, so as Benedictine monks, we're going to move on past the monastery. Uh, they take vows. We take promises, a promise of stability, promise of obedience. And the third one, and this is so Methodist too, by the way, we take a, a vow in, in the Catholic world, you gotta use a good, you gotta use a good Latin phrase. Uh, we take a vow of conversatio morum. We take a vow of ongoing conversion. We can't stop, now it's interesting, you just heard the vow of stability. But the opposite side of that vow of stability is not a vow of stagnation. The opposite side of that is, is, a, is a vow of ongoing conversion. Now, we Methodists, you're going to learn, we talk about going on to perfection. Do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? Going on to perfection. Um, that, that is the ancient vow of ongoing conversion. Every day, you've got to make, be making a little bit further down the road. You, you can't just stand on the promises. you got to stand on the promises, keep from falling, but you should be making some progress in life. So in the Catholic world, it's ongoing conversion. You know, you might have given your sins to Jesus, but have you given your entertainment to get Jesus? Have you given your finances to Jesus? Have you given your retirement plan to Jesus? The list goes on and on and on. So my, my Benedictine brothers, they didn't know they were setting me up for Methodism, but they were, um, with, with a vow of obedience to an ecclesiastical superior, with a vow of ongoing conversion uh, to, because of our conviction about perfection, 
and then um, uh, the vow of stability because the way we appoint pastors, and by the way, I'm sure you know Methodist bishops have more power than any Catholic bishop ever dreamed of having, for good and for bad. But, um, you know, sometimes, um, yeah, you know, we send preachers. And I remember writing, as I served as this superintendent one time, helped make the appointments. Um, I, I remember every April I would put an article in my newsletter about how, and this language you'll learn more about this week, how the itinerancy is a means of grace. You know, I mean, that's why, if, you know, if I call you up and say you're going to Ranger, North Carolina, y'all know where Ranger is? That is west of Murphy. So we're not Manio to Murphy. There is Ranger, and we have a Methodist church in Ranger. So, you know, if I call you up and say, um, we have prayerfully discerned, and the bishop is appointing you to the church in Ranger, North Carolina, and you just have a meltdown scream and gnash teeth and call me names, you know, I'll listen and then I'll say, but this, I, I know that this is God's will, and it's going to be a sanctifying experience for you. This will help you go on to perfection. This will help you grow. And again, I think about some of my experiences, which is a whole other story, some of my experiences in Franklin, North Carolina. It was just the most bizarre. Anyway, dealt with embezzlement, dealt with incest, dealt, the list went on. It was the longest appointment of my career. Um, and it was not very long chronologically, but it was the longest appointment of my career. Because that, that's, it can be a sanctifying experience. Anyway, the Benedictine monks kind of um, uh, set me up for um, Methodism. Because then when I graduated from uh, college, uh, history, religious studies, at that point, I was so young, I hadn't even turned 22 yet. Um, but at that point, and most anybody that's 22 years old, that even if they know they're called to the ministry, even if they know they're called to a local church ministry, they're not gonna tell you at age 22. What I've learned over the years is, that's always the crowd that says, I, I'm going to do the academic route. I will teach Christian faith. I will teach Christianity. And, you know, we had a whole group of us at Duke Divinity School who were wet behind the years, and we told everybody, we're, we're going to get a Ph.D., and we're going to teach. And not that local church, not, not that preacher stuff. You know, we're going to do the academic route. So I chose Duke University. Um, um, coming out of a Catholic setting, I choose, chose Duke University because it's pretty good school academically. I chose that. I went there. Um, it's a Methodist affiliated school. Went there. Even though when I went, the Divinity School had 26 denominations represented. The bulk were United Methodist because it is supported by the United Methodist Church. So I went there and loved the academic work and loved the academic environment. Um, well, when I got there too, I also ran across, I, I come to know this man named John Wesley. Real, real deeply. And uh, come to see all these Methodist types. Um, I had a friend, and actually it was a Presbyterian friend of mine who was at Duke, becoming a Presbyterian pastor, who he was the one that sort of enticed me to look at Duke. And um, he was there, he is now ordained Presbyterian, probably getting close to retirement. Uh, i tell you a, a quick joke that you may understand after we do theology. I remember going into the, uh, one of the theaters there at Duke University for some play, and, and I went in, and there was an empty seat. There, there sat Sam, my Presbyterian friend, Calvinist, Presbyterian, predestinarian friend. And I walked in, and I said, Sam, is that seat saved? He said, only a Methodist would ask. <laughs> Now, after we do theology, that'll make more sense to you. But anyway, so uh, I, I, I started encountering Methodism there. I did do some youth ministry, by the way, in college at a Presbyterian church. So I, I know if I'm in a Presbyterian church, they're going to debt. They're not going to trespass. I know that if I'm in a Presbyterian church, they're going to um, uh, talk about the Holy Ghost and the Creed and not Holy Spirit. Um, so I, I know a little bit about Presbyterianism, the Calvinist branch, and we'll talk about some of that later. But I did that youth ministry because um, I was the best they could find, and I went cheap in those days. And I did some youth ministry there. But then, then I, I graduated from college, went to Duke Divinity School, encountered a lot of Methodist people, uh, particularly encountered Methodist theology, encountered um, John Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, our heritage. Uh, and one of the things you need to understand, and this makes perfect sense, if you take 
an evangelical revival low church background like Baptist and mix it with a uh, respect for sacraments, a respect for church history, a respect for um, the church fathers and mothers, but most of the fathers in the early history of the church, a respect for church fathers, uh, uh, a respect for order um, and hierarchy in the life of the church, and you mix those together, what logically comes out of the factory? United Methodist. Uh, when we talk about our history, you'll see that we, we came out of the Church of England. John Wesley lived and died, an Anglican priest. We call that Episcopalian here in the United States. He lived and died an Anglican priest. Uh, I've been told he was buried with his prayer book. Um, so that's, that's our heritage in England. If you want to know Methodist theology, think evangelical, low church, sort of laid back, Episcopalian. That's who we are. That's why our Eucharist, communion, our baptismal liturgy is almost straight out of the Book of Common Prayer. Now my Episcopal brothers and sisters, where we differ is they pretty much have to use that book. I get to use that book. Because what happened with the Methodists, we came to America after we got started in England. We came to America, um, which was a very frontier environment. Um, no churches, no cathedrals, no pipe organs. Uh, it was really hard to be Anglican and Episcopalian out here on the frontier. Um, no choirs. So, but, but we, because we sent preachers, you know, before you got your wagon unloaded, there was a Methodist preacher there to have a chat with you, the circuit riders. So we, 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 we grew tremendously in the United States. But part of what happened when we came to the United States and we kind of distanced ourselves from that Church of England environment, um, we, we invented the camp meeting. If anybody ever asked you that, the first camp meeting created by Methodists happened in Lincoln County, North Carolina, what is now Lincoln County, North Carolina. It was done not by Francis Asbury, which you'll learn later, it was done by uh, Daniel Asbury. Um, so we started those camp meetings. And then in the particular 1800s, we're the ones that wrote all the gospel songs. Fanny Crosby is one of ours. So we're the ones writing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Uh, because of our doctrine, which this will mean more to you tomorrow, because of our doctrine of entire sanctification, we were writing hymns like, I Surrender All, I Lay It All on the Altar. So um, when we came to America, we, got, we came really low church. As soon as the Revolutionary War was over, and that really bothered John Wesley, that we rebelled. When the Revolutionary War was over, we had to separate from the Church of England. That was not popular anymore. We had to separate from the Church of England, and um, John Wesley begrudgingly let us go. And one of the first things he did was he abridged the Book of Common Prayer that the Episcopalians used. That's what you tend to think. Um, he abridged the Book of Common Prayer and sent it to the New American Church, and we promptly ignored it because we were a frontier environment. So the Book of Common Prayer just was difficult. It was, it was rooted in history and tradition and very scriptural, but it was just difficult. We, we, we flourished for 100 years with the camp meeting motif. Just, um, you know, we, we sang hymns and you would line out the hymns, which means I'd sing the first line, you repeat it. I sing the second line, you repeat it. I mean, we didn't even have hymnals for a long time. So uh, that's why when you look at who we are, we're a beautiful blend of the historic church, Roman Catholic, Church of England, United Methodist, and we'll talk theologically why that's true too. That's why you're, I'm assuming you're United Methodist. Those of us who are United Methodist, we are closer. Now, I want you to chew on this, but you'll figure this out. We as United Methodists are closer theologically to Roman Catholics than to Presbyterians. Now, our worship looks alike. And again, remember I told you that's where our differences come in worship style. Our worship looks more like a Presbyterian. So people think we're like a Presbyterian. There's a major difference. We're closer to Roman Catholic theology in regards to sacraments and grace and who can be redeemed. The list goes on. Um, but we come out of that Roman Catholic Church of England, um, then Methodist branch. What was the name of the new church that we created in 1784 in the United States? 
or maybe on a plaque out here. Is it Methodist Thank you, Methodist Episcopal Church. Then when we split over slavery, we became Methodist Episcopal South. Um, there was a group of Methodists in this part of the world. There was a group of Methodists who, after a while, refused to have bishops. They became Methodist Protestant. Because Episcopal, Episcopos means you have bishops, which, which we do. So anyway, it really is almost logical for me that when I went uh, to Duke and I, I really studied my way into Methodism, it was that beautiful blend of the historic church, the traditional liturgy of the church, the reverence and respect for the sacraments as means of grace. But I still got to see Fanny Crosby. I didn't get to, yeah, Catholics don't sing Fanny Crosby. You know, some of those hymns that I grew up with, that, that, there was lots of reasons why I ended up, I became Methodist, things happened, God led me. When I went to my first Methodist church, I still had my breviary with me, which is my Catholic prayer book. Still had it with me, still use it, by the way. Um, but, when I, but there are a lot of reasons I ended up being United Methodist, but it, it, it really was sort of a perfect blend or perfect storm, however you want to look at it, uh, that, that came together. Because I wanted to be able to, to blend together that liturgical, sacramental, historical. John Wesley loved the early church. When he talked about experience being formative, he didn't mean what you did last year. He means what we did before the Nicene Creed was developed in 325. So love the early church. But yeah, we get, we get to do all the American evangelical Protestant hymns because we wrote most of them. So that blend is sort of what attracted me to Methodism. And in some ways, I studied my way to Methodism around a bunch of Methodist seminarians. Um, then I got out in the world and met real-life Methodist people. And that's, that's another story. But um, we're not always what we are on paper. But that's human nature. You know, that's why on paper we believe in entire sanctification. By Thursday, I want you to figure out whether or not you do. Um, but... Methodism believes in entire sanctification, appropriately defined. We believe in entire sanctification. So, um, and the other part of my rich tradition that I, I'm very grateful for is where I've done academic work. Um, and I, I could not have planned this had I tried 40 years ago. Four institutions. Now, I want you, again, God has a wonderful sense of humor. Um, I like to think it's richness and the diversity. Started out at a Roman Catholic college. Went to Duke. Mainline Protestant. And what all that means, particularly these days. Then I did a doctorate at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which is the sixth largest seminary in the world. Uh, it was the product of a merger of several seminaries back in the 60s. The person who was instrumental in pulling off the merger and was therefore chairman of the board of trustees and then died as chairman of the board of trustees emeritus uh, was Billy Graham. So keep in mind, Roman Catholic, mainline Protestant, <coughs> Billy Graham School, Gordon Connell Theological Seminary. And then I went back and got another master's in um, is a history, it's, it's a master's in the history of Christian origins. I got it at UNC Charlotte. So I've got Roman Catholic, mainline Protestant, evangelical Protestant, and just all out pagan. I got <laughs> and, um, I mean, and really, I mean, there's only two of our state schools that has graduate degrees in religious studies. Did you know that? Chapel Hill started it because of Bart Ehrman. And then, um, uh, UNC Charlotte started because of James Tabor. And it's really interesting. You have to learn, the first thing you do when you enter a program like that is you have to learn the argument for, yes, we can teach religious studies at a state-supported, tax-supported school. So what you learn fast is, and you know this, is everybody that's learning there and, or teaching there, everybody's teaching there, they're doing the Christian faith in a non-confessional way, which you can do. Uh, James Tabor, who was my mentor because he was an archeologist. This, by the way, is one, one of the reasons for my love of 
trips to Israel. He was an archaeologist. He is an archaeologist. Done a lot of significant digs around Jerusalem. He's done a lot of significant digs in Qumran. He was one of the um, translators of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The man sleeps and dreams in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. He knows history like you wouldn't believe. Jesus Christ was a great teacher, a great Jew. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't believe any of it, as far as the spiritual supernatural stuff. He's he's a historian. He's a historian. So he he spent his years teaching at a. Um, story ends rather fascinating though. He spent he spent his career teaching at a state supported school, teaching religious studies, basically teaching Christian origins from a historical, literary perspective. A linguistic perspective. Uh, now, interestingly enough, because he's done this for so long, because he knows the historic Jesus, he knows all about that man that walked around Judea and Galilee. Now, that resurrection stuff and coming back from the dead stuff, and, yeah, he thinks we Christians made all that up. But he knows about the historic Jesus. In the last decade, I saw some of this when I was studying with him. He has became. He, our tradition is so rich in the Jewish and Christian faith. He has, became an, he has become an Ebionite. You know what an Ebionite is? We had some of those in the early church. Now we got James Tabor. We had some of those in the early church. There's actually even a gospel of the Ebionites. You can look, Google it, gospel of the Ebionites. It's a group in, around Jerusalem that long after the church became very Gentile and Paul and all that stuff happened and we moved into the wider world and we moved into Greece and Italy, um, some, of the, some of the Jewish community in, um, around Jerusalem, they embraced Jesus as the, the, the epitome, the best of all the Jewish prophets, of all the Jewish religious teachers. So they're sort of Christian and they make a big deal of Jesus, not the supernatural spiritual stuff, but as a teacher, as a prophet. And, you know, I noticed with James, he started keeping Sabbath. He started um, uh, keeping kosher. Yeah, he, he's kind of an Ebionite now. He's not Jewish. Um, that circumcision thing might have something to do with it. He's not <laughs> Jewish, but he is what we called in the New Testament period a God-fearer. Someone who's connected themselves, like Luke, to the, um, to the Jewish community. So that's why he's become... So I've had that rich, diverse experience um, in, 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 in the academic world. Um, so that you put all that together, you mix all that up, the richness of Methodism comes out. Uh, Methodism is an um, Orthodox Protestant church. Um, again, being Church of England means that we, the Church of England says they're not really Protestant. The Episcopalians, I assume you know, say they're not Protestant. They're a bridge church between Catholic and Protestants. Um, that's sort of our heritage, too, which is another reason we're closer to Catholic theology than we are, so some Catholic theology than we are Presbyterian theology in a lot of ways. Um, we'll talk about that tomorrow. Um, well, that's probably enough. That's probably enough. So questions or comments or we got six minutes.